Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man whose name is synonymous with the winners in the world, but I want a name when I lose. You might call Alabama the Crimson Tide. Here's my co-host from the left coast. Call him Deacon Blues. Here's Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben Hamid. My second favorite Steely Dan song. Yes. So for this episode, we have a special guest who is a referral from Josh Kelly, who was our guest on our episode about the band. He is the man behind the kit for some really great musicians, and I think we'll talk about a few of them. So please welcome to the podcast, David Goodstein. Hello. How are you? I'm, as George Carlin would say, not unwell. That's that's good. That's uh, <laughs> in in this day and age, um, good is is good. Yeah, it's a strange. It's just obviously it's a strange time for everybody. But I just celebrated a, a birthday on Tuesday too. So this is like my first COVID birthday, which was a little weird, you know. But yeah. um, well, happy birthday! Thank yeah, you. Happy birthday! Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, let's jump into this. So premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast episode, I ask the all-important question. I'm going to start with Wayne. So what t-shirt are you wearing? It's the day before the Super Bowl. uh, So I'm wearing my Seattle Seahawks, one of my Seattle Seahawks t-shirts. Okay. And the Seahawks are not in the Super Bowl. I don't know if you need a reminder one. of that one. Not this one, but okay, yeah. Um, how about you, David? What T-shirt are you wearing? I just because of this podcast, you know, when you talked about the T-shirt thing, I am wearing the coolest T-shirt I've ever found and owned, and probably the coolest shirt I'll ever own. From what I can gather, it is a Sly in the Family Stone concert T-shirt. From the High on You tour, that record came out in 75. And uh, the front of the shirt says Sly and the Family Stone, High on You. And on the back of the shirt, it says Mile High is High for Sly. So I guess it was like a a regional, you know, Denver T-shirt from the 70s. That is fantastic. Right? Fantastic. (laughs) Like, like. I don't even know what the street value of that t-shirt would be. Man. Yeah. It's so cool. And the thing is I lost it. I I couldn't find it. And then I was, I didn't have it for about five or six years. And then I had a bag of something that I was going through. Uh, I'm not the most organized person in the world. And then at the bottom of the bag was this shirt. And I literally burst into tears because for six years I was like, I had the best shirt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How how often do you wear it considering? I don't wear it that often. Yeah. I don't, I don't, but yeah, I mean, if there, if there was ever a day to wear it, it it, it was today. Perfect. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for wearing the cool t-shirt. That, (laughs) that might be the coolest t-shirt we've had on this podcast. (laughs) That is very possible. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm wearing a shirt that I've worn a number of times. So this is my Neil Young Harvest album cover t-shirt. Nice. That's an amazing record. Fantastic record. One of my favorites. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. Episode number two. Is that correct, Wayne? Is that episode number two? Yeah. Episode number two, which um, we took that off of our platforms because 
we didn't have any freaking clue of what we were doing on episode <laughs> number two. So, um, all right. Well, David, you, uh, you were a referral from Josh. Um, he, uh, he spoke very highly of you and he also was like, dudes, you guys are going to have like the greatest time ever with David. So oh, thanks you know, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, as soon as anybody says that, I'm like, Oh, we're, we're all in, we're, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, I had a couple minutes the other day to kind of, um, I, I kind of snooped on your, on your social. So I hope you don't mind. Not at all. So I was, I was looking at all of the people that you have played with and it's pretty dang impressive. Thank you. But I want to say this. I didn't see any pictures of you and Josh. You know, the, the ones that I have of me and Josh are very compromising. So I, (laughs) (laughs) no, actually that's a, it's an interesting point. So, so what records have you played on for, for Josh? Josh, the first one I did was, uh, I did, what was it? I think it was Almost Honest. Okay. We did about three or four songs for that, and I think only one or two made that record. And that was from what, 2005? 2005? Yeah, 2005 okay. sounds right. 2004, 2005, around there. Yeah. And then the next one was Special Company. And okay. that one I did most, I think I did, I think Mike Miley was also in our camp back then. Actually, Mike played with Josh and Joe Firstman, and now he's the drummer for, uh, what's that amazing rock band? Um, I'm, try- I'm trying to remember. That name sounds really super familiar. Hold on. These guys are, like, huge. Uh, some band down in Long Beach. He's like, I'm going to go down to Long Beach and join this band. And everyone's like, um, okay. And it's Rival Sons. <laughs> Rival Sons. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and I love that dude. He's he's a great drummer, great guy. But, yeah, he's on Special Company also. And he's on like a real, you know, like a real like blue-eyed soul tune too, you know. So so, so looking at your Instagram and Facebook. Yes, sir. So most recently looks like you did some work with – Barry Gibb and Dolly Parton. Yeah, that was in August of 19, uh, uh, excuse me, August of 2019. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that was an amazing, uh, that was just an incredible, incredible day, just one day. And so you've also done a lot of other work with Dolly over the years. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. I, the, the, I, my connection with Dolly happened through Linda Perry. Yeah. Who I do a lot of sessions for out here. And one of those turned into Dolly Parton's last record. I think or she might've put something out since, but the, she did the soundtrack to the movie Dumplin'. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I love that movie. And uh, we did that record and it was incredible. You know, Linda got, you know, Sia on one song. She got Mavis Staples on a song and Miranda's on that. If I remember Miranda's on yeah. it. Yeah. But we did all of those tracks uh, in L.A., and then I think Linda went around the country getting the vocals. So we didn't actually work with any of the guests' artists. Um, But Dolly came out to L.A. to do some vocals, and that's when we met her, and that was incredible. And then uh, she asked us to do a bunch of promos, so we did 
some TV shows and in, uh, in New York and out here. And then we did the Grammys with her a couple of years ago. Oh, they did that. You know, that was uh, that was an incredible night. Yeah. Was that the was that the performance that she did with Brandy Carlisle? Yes. Awesome. So that's that's you on the kit behind those two. Wait, was Brandy there? I don't remember. No, it was uh, it was uh, who was it? My memory is not that great. It was uh, with her niece. Uh, uh, no, her goddaughter, Miley Cyrus. Oh, okay. And um, was, okay. They did like a tribute to Dolly. Uh, it was like a twelve-minute tribute, and it started with I think Miley yeah. Cyrus and uh, Katy Perry, and then all these other artists kept coming out. It was like a big medley of Dolly stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah, that was us. Actually, everybody on stage was uh, the musicians that were on that record. Those are all Linda's people. Very cool. Very cool. And it's a crazy eclectic group of musicians. You know, it's uh, the bass players does a lot of jazz gigs. That keyboard player uh, tours with the cult playing keyboards and guitar. You know, it's a real fun eclectic group we can kind of almost do anything so it's a lot of fun how'd you get hooked up with linda linda that happened when did that happen it happened a lot like maybe 10 12 years ago um through a great bass player out here named paul ill and uh he she needed something for something and then he recommended me and then she was like, oh my God, you're great. And then she called me for a couple sessions. And then it's one of those things where like, then if you can't do something, like you're not going to hear from her again, you know, and then she'll forget, you know? So then years went by and then she said, I need blah, 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 blah. And someone's like, you should use David Goodstein. She's like, I remember that guy. And then um, someone else gave her my name and she called me and I was actually in Europe with uh I was with Ivan Neville and Dumpster Funk. I was doing a tour Very cool. with Dumpster Funk. Yeah. And she's like, why are all my people telling me to use you? And I was like, because you should use me. She's like, well, I got something. And I said, I'm in France. And she's like, fuck you, David Goodstein. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really funny. I was like, look, if you can wait another week, I'll be back. And it didn't happen. But then a couple of months later, she's like, I really need something for something. And then another one of her people was like, you should call this guy, David Goodstein. And then she was like, Oh my God. All right. Enough. So she called me and, uh, I've been back in her graces ever since. So, so, so let's, let's go back. So you, when you said out here, I'm assuming LA, cause that's yeah. what Linda is. Mm-hmm. So where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. Fantastic. So I'm just yes, it was. I, and what part of Miami? I grew up in. Uh, I was born and raised in Kendall. Are you familiar with Miami? Yeah, I go down there occasionally for you know whether it's concerts or to to go do baseball. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I grew up in Kendall, which is a neighborhood uh, southwest okay. of the urban area. Yeah. Uh, which we'll probably touch on when we do this record because there's a lot of those themes on, on the record. But yeah, I grew up in the suburbs and then uh, we moved to a neighborhood called Pinecrest. Okay. Just kind of like, you know, east of the highway, south of Coconut Grove. So you're not too far from the U. The, the U. That would be north of where I grew That's up. North. That's okay. Coral Gables. Okay. 
Okay. But yeah, my father actually went there and I, I grew up in the orange bowl <laughs> with the dolphins and the hurricanes. And in high school, I would skip school and go over to the U okay. and watch. They used to have these ensembles. They would have like a, a tower of power ensemble or a chick Korea ensemble. And, you know, they set up in the student union and, and these monster musicians would play. And sometimes on Fridays we'd, skip school and go over to university of Miami to watch that stuff. And, uh, yeah, incredible. So that started your, your path on wanting to be a musician. So what, what was the path? Like, what were the, what were the, the couple monumental moments? The first moment is the one that I remember. Um, my father would sing to me and my sister play guitar and he was a drummer. He had a drum set set up. But I remember, I think I was maybe four years old or five years old, uh, I heard Please Please Me in the car. And and that breakdown, you know, right after that second chorus, please please me, oh yeah, like I please you. I heard that, I was ruined. (laughs) Completely ruined. So I assume that you are in the camp of Ringo is one of the best. Not only is Ringo one of the best, but the Beatles are one of the best. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah, I'm one of the bigger Beatle fans you'll ever meet. But I didn't want to pick a Beatle record for some reason. I just felt like that was too. It's too obvious. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, now we're going to talk about Michael Jordan. Like, you know, like what, you know, what, what, what can be said that hasn't been said, you know? Right. All but, right. uh, yeah, I jumped on my dad's drums. I played it. And he looked at my mother and he's like, did you teach him? And apparently my dad said, how, where did you learn how to do that? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. And, uh, yeah, that was it. I was off and running. Okay. And, and did you go to college for for music or I went to college for, I think 15 minutes, (laughs) (laughs) like three semesters. I, uh, my parents sent me to boarding school when I was in high school. Uh, I was, not a horrible kid, but I, I, uh, at, they just reached a point where they were like, we can't deal with this anymore. Maybe he needs to go away. And while I was there, I didn't play the drums, but I taught myself how to play guitar a little bit. Okay. And I had taken some piano when I was a kid. So when I got out of boarding school, I was off and running. And the idea of going to college and doing anything like that wasn't uh, that in the cards for me. Okay. I just really wanted to be out every night going to jam sessions, getting better. I felt like I had missed a couple of years in my development. And when I decided I wanted to do it again, I felt like I needed to catch up. So, you know, and a teacher at school said, Hey, why are you always tired? And I was like, well, I was down in the grove till three in the morning. I was watching these musicians. And she said, you know, we'll always be here. If that's what you need to be doing right now. And that's what you need to be pursuing. Do it. Go for it. Yeah. And a teacher said that to me and I was like, thank you. And I did. Yeah. That's good. Good advice. So, yeah. So I'm assuming you jump from band to band. Um, you know, what, what were some of the big breaks of getting to getting you where you're, where you're at now, where you're, you know, you're a gun for hire and th- these, these well-known people in the industry are looking at you because you're, a, a talent. Well, the first break I had uh, down in Miami was with an amazing singer songwriter uh, named Nil Lara. 
And uh, I started playing with him when I was like 21 or so. And then um, <clears throat> he, uh, you know, he ended up on uh, getting a record deal with Capitol. And we toured the galaxy for a few years, opening up for everybody from Michelle and Diego Cello to uh, Los Lobos. And uh, that was uh, that was a fast track, you know, in what to do and what not to do and what life is like out there. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a pretty heavy experience. And I did a lot of traveling and a lot of touring. And then I reached a point where I felt like I needed to take it to the next level. And I wanted to go to New York, but I didn't think my jazz was good enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 You kind of have to know the jazz thing for, for New York. So you then went to LA. I, I picked LA. Yeah. Uh, nil was on Capitol. So every time we were on the road, you know, you'd be bouncing in the van and then we'd get to New York and they'd put us up in a hotel for a week to 10 days and he would have a bunch of meetings and, you know, what are we going to do this and that? And, and we'd be free to roam the city and that would happen in New York and it would happen out here in LA. So, you know, you'd be bouncing, 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 bouncing. And then you get to Los Angeles and they're like, yo, you're going to do a KCRW thing on Wednesday. You'll open up for whoever at the will turn on Saturday, Monday, you'll play at the Viper room. And the rest of the time you were going to be, you know, Nils going to be in meetings with the label, figuring out what the next step is and, you guys do whatever you want. So I had a lot of hang time out here in 95, 96, 97. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I still don't know how I ended up here cause you know, everybody from Miami goes to New York, but, um, yeah, I just felt like this would be the better choice. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah. so you're in LA. How, how long do you stay with Neil before you decide, okay, maybe I need to go shop my, my resume around. Well, we finished, we were out for like two and a half, three, almost three years of touring. And then it was time for him to do the next record. And then there were a lot of delays and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And, and everything just got kind of murky. And I finally said, you know, I turned 29 and I was like, man, I do not want to be 30 and, and still be here. Yeah. And, and then I took off and that was 21 years ago. And then from there, do you join other bands or do you just kind of say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a gun for hire. I'm studio musician. I just kind of, you just, you don't really say anything. I guess you just, you know, (laughs) you just, you want to play in my brain. I wanted to play and I wanted people to know who I was. So I kind of did what I did in Miami. I found all these jam sessions, you know, but most of them were, you know, down in South Central <laughs> and down in, in, in neighborhoods where you're not going to see a lot of session musicians. You know, I was going to blues jams and yeah. going to some jazz jams and, you know, and then I got into the blues scene down here and I was playing with a lot of blues artists. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you just go, it, you know, one of the, you just want to play with as many people as possible and you want to take as many gigs as possible. And just have as many people see you as possible, you know? And so how do you do that? So you, you were, you were in the pretzel logic, which is a steely Dan tribute band, correct? Yeah, I did that. Uh, they were in between drummers and they needed, um, yeah, they needed somebody to cover a bunch of, bunch of dates and a bunch of stuff. And that was a blast. 
and then you've also done the Wild Honey Orchestra. How many how, how how many times have you done stuff with them? Wild Honey, I went in on that the year they did they did Sergeant Pepper and was it Rubber Soul or Revolver? I can't remember. And then they did the White Album. Then they did Abbey Road. Then we did the band, which was incredible. We did uh, Buffalo Springfield. We did the Kinks. And the last one we did was, um, oh, my God, John Sebastian's band. Okay. Love Love and Spoonful. Yeah. Yeah. And we got John and the the surviving guys to, to do it with us, which was pretty cool. That's very cool. So I'm assuming you know Ronnie Barnett, who... I do. I love Ronnie. We love Ronnie too. Yes, he, absolutely. He, Ronnie's a great dude. He was on an episode with us um, doing The Knack. Oh, yeah. That's perfect. And it wasn't The Knack's first album. He picked the second album. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, that was a blast. But the Wild Hunting Orchestra is just this conglomeration of some of the the, the, the best musicians that are out there. Yeah, it's like the power pop thing. One of the guys that puts it together is a really good friend of mine, and he's the one that got me in on it. And uh, it's just kind of funny. I was like, you know, he's like, we're doing, you know, he explained it to me, and it was all very nebulous. He's like, we're doing Sergeant Pepper. And I was like, I could sing, I could play. He goes, why don't you just show up at the rehearsal on Wednesday? And I was like, well, what do I need to do? What should I? Oh, boy. (laughs) There's a fire in your neighborhood. They're looking for me. Hold on. Let me just hide under. Oh, that's a fire truck. I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's like, just show up. And I was like, well, what? He goes, dude, just show up. So I show up. And do you guys know, the, remember that band, the, the Wondermans? Or, uh, Darian uh, is the keyboard player in that band. He's like the musical director for Brian Wilson. They all ended up joining Brian's band. And okay. that's who these guys are. And so they're kind of rehearsing Sergeant Pepper. They're going through it. And I'm just sitting there. And then finally, you know, the, the people that are singing aren't there. So they moved on to, I think it was the reprise, you know, Sergeant Pepper. And he's like, we don't have, uh, so-and-so is in here. Can anybody cover the vocals? And then my buddy who got me in there, he looked at me and he like raised his eyebrow. And I was like, uh, I can. And Darren's like, uh, okay, dude, we'll get on the mic. And so I sang it. And then Darian was like, all right, I don't know who this guy is, but he's in the show. <laughs> And that started it. They kind of hired me as a singer. They didn't even know I was a drummer the first couple of years. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I want to go back to a couple other people that I saw that you've been connected with. So Joe, Joe Perry, how'd that happen? Oh yeah. That happened through a buddy of mine, uh, Bruce Whitkin, an amazing engineer, producer, bass player. And he, uh, did a lot of music for, uh, Johnny Depp. I, I think him and Johnny grew up together. Okay. And they weren't, you know, that story about Johnny being in a band. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bruce was in that band with him. Okay. And Bruce is related to a kid I grew up with. They're all from South Florida originally. Um, and uh, a buddy of mine, a guitar player I came up with in Miami. He's like, you know, you got to hook up with my cousin when you get out to LA, you guys are going to love each other. And that was Bruce. And uh, we're just really good buddies. And he was working with Joe and uh, he got me in on that. So are you on all the tracks on that particular solo album? 
I believe I am. Okay. I think Johnny might have played drums on one of them. Did he tour for that one? We did we did a show, we did like a record, a big record release with all of the guest singers, which was like Okay. That was just amazing. It's like now I'm playing with Robin Sander, now I'm playing with, you know, yeah. You know, David Johannes and you know, it was it was pretty amazing. Uh I'm sorry, David Johansson. Sorry, New York Dolls. Yep. It's still early for me. <laughs> but uh <laughs> um yeah, it was just like this all-star jam and I was the drummer and uh it was incredible. Then they did I think Joe did a couple of weeks in between. I wasn't on that run. Okay. I, but then he had some dates in Japan and he they asked me to do those. Um yeah, he they he kind of you know, he's on his own level and you know, when you get the call, you're 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 ready to go and it's yeah. you just, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Plus, he's got a day job that kept him really busy. <laughs> <laughs> that record took a long time to make, you know, because we'd be working for like a couple of weeks and then he'd take off for six months, you know. Right, and, right. You know, that, that damn day job. <laughs> so, so with COVID shutting all the touring down, how have you stayed busy over the last year? You know, it's been tough. I, uh it's been tough, uh, to be honest. There's a lot of, you know, drumming has been, you know, it's been a, a, it's almost like, you know, it's my identity. It's my social standing. It's my living. It's, you know, how I put food on the table. It's, uh, there's so many things attached to it. Uh, and so without that, I've had to find other things to, uh, to fill that void. And it hasn't been easy, but, uh, I am very musical. Uh, I hear music, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm a musician who plays the drums, you know, cause I got, you know, I'll yeah. tell you what key the song's in. I, I hear everything. So what I've been doing is I've been, I've been teaching myself pro tools and I've been doing a bunch of music library stuff at home and I'm, you know, getting better at guitar, better at bass, better at keys. And I'm kind of doing that. And, uh, and you already sing. Yeah. So you got that going. Yeah. There's been a couple of drum sessions that I've done and there's been a couple of cool gigs like remote gigs where, you know, everybody was tested and you're set up on a soundstage and yeah, may, you know, everyone is on a TV screen watching and, you know, for on zoom, you know, some corporation hired us to do something and it was real pro. Everyone was, like I said, everyone was tested and, you know, and there's been a couple sessions that everybody was, you know, tested and stuff like that. But it, there hasn't been a ton of drum in the last 10 months. So yeah, it hasn't been easy. Yeah, that's too bad. Well, I hope we get back out there soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking maybe by the end of this year, things will start to open up. And maybe, yeah, maybe early next year. Yeah, from a selfish standpoint, I'm missing live music. So I can only imagine what the musicians who you know, earn their living off of doing live music or are feeling like, so it's tough, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and the thing with drumming in particular, it's almost, you know, it's like being a trumpet player, you know, like your embouchure or whatever they call that, you know, you, you got to stay on it or you're gonna, you know, at one point I went about three or four months without playing and I got on a kit and I was doing my thing and it, you know, you think about what you're going to do and then it, 
you know, my hands, I'm like, man, something's wrong with my elbow because everything's stopping at my elbow and it's not coming out of my hands. Like, yeah, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of physicalness to it. And there's a lot of, you know, like, like Prince wrote joy and repetition, you know, and if you're not doing it, you know, it'll start to dissipate quickly. Yeah. All right. Well, um, all right. Last, last question before we, uh, we talk about the record that you chose. So, um, how did you get hooked up with Josh? There was a jam session in LA that was run by, uh, Joe Firstman, who's an incredible songwriter that Josh worked with and Danny Masterson, the actor. And it was yeah. like this kind of jazz soul jam that they were doing every Sunday night. And I popped in there with a bass player, buddy of mine. And, uh, you know, we were told to check this thing out, you know, and we stayed there all night. They didn't let us sit in. And then they ended up doing like some Neville brother stuff. And this guy worked with Aaron Neville and I've worked with Ivan and, uh, you know, it got towards the end of the night and he's like, man, we should just go. They're not going to let us sit in. And we walked out and he's like, man, isn't that funny? We're probably the only two guys that played with Neville's and they're not letting us play. And I was like, I know he goes, man, I'm never coming back to this place again. And I was like, I hear you. I'm going to be here at 11 o'clock next Sunday, though. <laughs> and he's, you know, that was like my Miami attitude. He's like, why would you bother? I said, because they're going to make a mistake and they're going to let me sit in. And then that's it. And that's what happened. They let me sit in. And then you fast forward four months later, I'm in the house band. I'm bringing drums. Sometimes there was a whole crew of musicians. I ended up working with Joe. I ended up working with Josh. I ended up jamming with John Mayer and Christine Aguilera. And I mean, this place was the spot for a few years. And uh, it actually became a source of income. I mean, some nights, you know, the, you know, maybe I'd get up there, sing a song, play the drums once. And at the end of the night, Danny would hand me a hundred bucks. Dude, thank you so much for coming. You know, he, no guest list, you know, all those Hollywood actors and that whole scene. He's like, everybody that steps in this bar pays $10. And Danny at the end of the night would count all the money and give it to the band and he would tear it. Okay. We have four drummers. This drummer actually brought drums. So he gets X. This guy gets Y. This keyboard player brought the keyboard rig. He gets this amount. This guy sat in for five. You know what I mean? So he would, he would hand the money to the musicians every week and, you know, and that's how I met Josh. Josh was popping in there and singing and doing his thing. And, and then he asked me to do a gig with him. No, I, we did it this session and then he asked me to do a gig. And then after the special company record, he asked me to tour with him and uh, yeah. And, and are you on the, are, are you on his latest record? The latest, latest one. I don't think I am. Me and my baby. In the yeah. I don't think I am. I mean, I might be, it's, it's so weird the way it goes with him because I'll do. So, we haven't like gone into the studio to do a record in like, I think like 13 years. <laughs> okay. But he'll be like, man, I got these songs or, Hey, can you do this? Or why don't you come out to Utah? Or why don't we do this? And we'll do a bunch of stuff or he'll come to LA. And then a year later, like four of them will end up on a record. And then, you know what I mean? It's very, yeah. he's, he's, you know, one minute he's got, he's his own worst enemy. <laughs> he's so damn talented. He'll, he'll write like a, Michael McDonald type killer blue eyed soul song. And then he'll write like a band type song. And then he'll write a, you know, he's just constantly 
you know, he's in these different bags and they're all great and he's good at all of them, you know, or this will be straight up country. And, you know, so I, I never know what's going on with him, but sometimes I end up on it. Sometimes I don't, you know? <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. We, we talked about, um, the, the, the downside of, of being a musician in Utah where there is no scene. Yeah. And, and he even talked about, um, inviting one of the supposed good drummers in the area and the guy did one take and, and he was like, okay, well, thanks for coming. And he's like, oh, this is what I have to work with. Yeah. In Utah. So, and Josh is funny because he's, he's kind of like a drummer. You know what I mean? Like he thinks like a drummer and he sometimes during shows, he'll get down on the drums and I'll grab like the guitar and play, you know, we'll end certain songs that way. He loves the drums. He, he's very drum centric. He's very groove and rhythm centric. And, uh, yeah, you got to be on your toes with him if you're. You don't want to be a a bad drummer and be on on the stage with him. And when you say be on your toes, I'm assuming that's the the ADD in him. I don't know. It's he's just got really really good ears, you know. Okay, all right. And I get it, you know. I mean, yeah, he's ADD like me. You know, he's a nut. But, you know, when you hear everything, it's got to be there. You know what I mean? And he, yeah. there's a lot of rhythm. For, for the scene that he's in, it, it would surprise people, the, the music that he came up with and what he grew up with, you know. You know, he loves soul. He loves R&B. He loves Bob Marley. You know, so he's really aware of, of, of where the one is and the space between beat one and beat two and what should be there and how a groove should breathe. He's a great bass player. You know what I mean? He's the, he's really on top of the groove. Yeah. And yeah. uh yeah. Very cool. Yeah. All right, so so David, tell us what record you chose to revisit for this episode. I chose Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. All right. So, what were some other records that you thought about? You know it's funny. I I I had, like I told you, like, you know, I was going back with and forth with you. I'm like, I don't know what to pick. I, I had no idea what to pick. And then in the shower, I was thinking about a song off the Nightfly. And then I'm like, oh my God, you got to do the Nightfly. And it wasn't until after I told you, let's do the Nightfly. And only in the last 48 hours where I was like, oh my God, I could have done the White Album. Or, oh my God, I could, like, all of a sudden... <laughs> All these other records started coming to me where for like two weeks, I had no idea what to do. I, I'm starting to think that maybe, Wayne, we just need to give our guests, here. here's our wish list of <laughs> albums that we want to talk about. Maybe, maybe that will that will help with some selections. I don't yeah, know. If I, it's, or just tell them, don't overthink it. Just yeah. It's hard because like, you know, I mean, I'm not unique in feeling that music is something so huge and special and important and to pick a record is like you know that's that's heavy <laughs> like, which, that's a that's a big choice you know and then we'll get to your scoring thing in a minute because that just yeah you 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 sent me an email a couple nights ago and and we're like dude I, I don't know how to how to do this. I don't know how to score this because you're. I even said it to my girlfriend. I'm like, they're asking me to look at at at, at you know at a 
at a at a Degas and and say, well, what's your favorite color in the painting? Right. Like, I can't. <laughs> How do you do that? Yeah, usually our guests wait until we're recording to tell us that we're heartless <laughs> bastards in, well, in making them, to, you know, score some. What of I thought stuff. about doing is because I su- I submitted the score, and then you were going to be like, okay, so we're starting with eight, and I was like, oh, I didn't put that at eight. I put I was going to switch everything on you guys and just like <laughs> just be all ninja about it. No, that's four, not one. You know, <laughs> no, and we we get it. Like like I even I think I even told you for the the instructions of. We we get it. Don't overthink it. Just pick your favorite, pick your least favorite, and then just slot everything in between. Because well, my disclaimer yeah. is whatever my favorite and least favorite is, uh, so far as this is concerned, as a record for me, it's so cohesive, and every song is uh, every song could be my favorite song. But for purposes of this, and like a good record, every song on this record at some point in my life since I've started listening to it has been my favorite song. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. maybe like now at 51 in the middle of the pandemic, four days removed from my birthday, this is my list of favorite songs. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, well, let me get some some bio info on the record itself. So, mm-hmm. of course, Donald Fagan was a member of Steely Dan. This is his first solo record. Comes a few years after the making of Gaucho, which was really the 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 album before they took like what a fifteen year hiatus. Yeah, from the band. Yeah. They were done. Yeah. Um. So this is this is considered his debut solo record. Mm-hmm. It was produced by Gary Katz, who, um, well, I think we'll 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 get to his pedigree here soon. <sighs> Released in October of 1982, of course, it was on a major label, Warner Brothers, which I think Warner Brothers also did all the Steely Dan records too. Correct? I think the Steely I, Dan records were MCA. If was I it MCA? Correctly. Okay. All right. There's no Walter Becker on this album, correct? Not at all. Yeah. But the people that he assembled, so going back to what you were saying, David, of playing with, you know, just fantastic people and surrounding yourself with fantastic people. So here are some of the people that are on this this record. <laughs> Larry Carlton plays guitar on most of the tracks. I don't think yeah. he's on, I don't think he's on the, uh, IG, IGY. Um, right. but he is on almost all of them. Larry Carlton, like he was the man back in the, the, seventies and eighties, as far as studio work goes. And he was on a bunch of Staley Dan records. Yes, he was. Rick Derringer plays guitar on IGY. Yeah. Um, Michael O'Mardian is on a number of tracks. Greg Philigane's, is on a number of tracks. Uh, Jeff Picaro plays drums on what? Four songs? I think Just it's four about songs. About four or five songs. Yeah, and he's my favorite drummer guys. ever. He's pretty he's pretty awesome. He's um, my uh, he's my guy. Yeah. Um so yeah, you surround yourself with really great people to play with and um that turns into great records as well. Yeah. Uh, this was received well, both uh, commercially and critically. 
Um, I'm going to talk about uh, Grammy nominations here in a second. Reached number 11 on the Billboard Albums chart. So not not bad considering all of the craziness of 1982 and 83 and all the big records that were out at that time. Oh, yeah. Um, nominated for seven awards at the Grammys. You guys want to hear who he was nominated against? He didn't win any of these. It's nominated for Album of the Year. So here are the nominees. These are all um, heavy hitters. So Paul McCartney's Tug of War, John Cougar's American Fool, Billy Joel's The Nylon Curtain, and the Toto, Toto, Toto 4. That's my favorite Billy Joel record. Yeah, where where would you stack that, Wayne? For for you, Nylon Curtain, third, um, I, fourth. Yeah, Strangers, my the Strangers, my favorite. Uh, but <clears throat> Nylon Curtain is is up there. It's interesting. The Stranger has one of my favorite songs of all time, but for some reason, Nylon Curtain just kills me as a record. Vienna is, I believe that's on the Stranger. That that song is just perfection. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we already know who wins album of the year. That would be Toto. Mm-hmm. Um, much, much to Wayne's chagrin. Uh Oh, <laughs> that's, that's not true. Don't, don't put me, don't, don't put me there, man. Man. I'll at that age in 82, I was 12 from like 12 to 17. That was probably my favorite band. <laughs> and that's probably because of Picaro. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you really learn how to play if you can separate. It's funny. I get why people don't like them, but Jeff Precaro in an interview actually said it best. He goes, listen, he goes, if you want lyrics, listen to Dylan. <laughs> if you want this, listen to that. He goes, if we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here, we're having fun. If you want to hear some tight grooves, tight arrangements, great playing, we're not taking ourselves seriously. That's what we're doing. You know, yeah. my favorite, he goes, I, I wouldn't listen to us. He goes, I listen to Jimmy <laughs> and I listen to Bob Dylan and, you know, and that's why Jeff was able to do so many sessions, but for who, for what they were doing as a teenager, trying to learn how to play, there was nothing better to listen to, to really get me to really learn how to play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. One one other thing that I read was after this record came out um, in an interview, Donald Fagan in 2006 says, said, I haven't listened to the Nightfly since I made it. Hmm. He has since remedied that because I've I've seen that he has played this album in its entirety uh, a couple different times. And um I guess in some kind of special engagements that he had mm. in like New York and Boston, which would have been super cool. Yeah. And I, I should have done more research and maybe Wayne, maybe you did a little more research than I did, but is, is there any reasoning behind the huge gap between recording of this album and then Donald's next solo album, which didn't come out until like 93, 93. There was something I, I can tell you that. In, yeah. in 86, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. He, reached a point in the making of this record where it was harder and harder for him to write. And what makes this record so interesting uh, is it's the most personal record he ever made. 
Right. You know, Steely Dan, when you listen to those songs, it's, you know, it's about, you know, a, a drug dealer, a basketball player, like, you know, Ken, Kate, the Merry Pranksters, there's, they were writing about so many disparate things and they were creating so many different realities and universes. And this record was really personal. And I think it was like cathartic for him and he was getting writer's block and he kind of just dipped out of the eighties after this record, except for he had a song on the soundtrack for bright lights, big city. Okay. And he had a song on uh, heavy metal. If you guys remember that movie yeah, that cartoon. Oh yeah. 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 But other than that, he took the eighties off and he just kind of went into a funk and he could afford that. He could definitely afford it. Yeah. Steely yeah. Dan you know? didn't do too bad. No. Yeah. No, I'm sure he was just living off of royalties and, but things were dark. And then he, uh, sometime in the early nineties, he felt like he, uh, there was a, a thing called, uh, the, there was a guy named Jeff Young, an amazing keyboard player who ended up touring with Steely Dan when they reunited and some solo stuff. And I became a fan of Jeff's and now I've actually worked with him out here in LA and I know him, which is pretty cool. But Jeff was doing a jam in New York city and they were getting Donald to show up, you know, and he'd pop in and he'd sing a song and he'd do something. And then they put out a record, a live record of this jam. And then I think Walter showed up at one of them and then, you know, Donald and Walter started talking and Donald said, I have some songs, but it's been so long. I, you know, would you, I don't want it to be Steely Dan, but could you just be there and produce the record for me and kind of maybe play a little bit? And so that second solo record, Comic Period, was produced by Walter Becker, and he's playing bass and guitar on it. But it's not a Steely Dan song because Walter didn't have any input on the writing. But that became an impetus for them to start playing again, which they never did even when they were at their biggest. Um, And then they started touring in 93 as a band. And then they put out that reunion uh, record of new material in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's good. Uh what was that? Two Against Nature? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That is a good record. Uh yeah. it doesn't it doesn't rival their 70s output, but it's pretty, it's good. I'm one of those weird ones with with certain artists. I'll find something to love about all of it and uh yeah. I love Two Against Nature and the one that came after Everything Must Go. They had so much fun doing that record. They went back into the studio a year or so later. And in 2002, they put out Everything Must Go, which has some great stuff on it. Yeah, I um, I never saw them live, which that's just a that's a, a bad on me. Um, did you get it? Did you get a chance to see them live? David? Absolutely. Uh, when they did that first reunion tour, it was like in 93. I mean, you got to remember, they... By the time they put out Pretzel Logic, I think that was 1974. That's before Asia, before the Royal Scam, before Gaucho. They stopped touring after that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last tour. So the the biggest records that they put out, they were never touring. Um, They were just a studio band. Which you couldn't do that now. What they did, you couldn't do. I mean, they would... They would come out, they'd be out here in LA 
they'd have five guys at Sunset Sound, five guys at the Village, five guys at the record plant. They'd have like three or four studios on lock with different bands recording the same song. And then they'd listen back and you're doing 80 takes of each song. And then they'd listen and they'd be like, okay, we should get, let's get Jeff on drums. He was at the village sessions and then we'll grab Chuck Rainey. He was over here at sunsets. You know what I mean? They'd listen and then they'd pick the core band out of what they heard. And then they'd go in with that band for that song and do another hundred takes. <laughs> it's just, right. it's insanity the way they worked. It's, you could never do that. No, no. Um, am I the only one who listens to those old records just so that I can try and pick out Michael McDonald? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, man, I'm fixated on Michael McDonald. It's probably one thing. of the greatest singers ever. Yeah. Homeboy could do anything. You guys ready to jump in? Go track by track. Sure. Hell yeah. right. As a reminder, our scoring is based on number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this one? Just eight. Um, David, he's underplaying how giddy he is with That's only. Not true. I like 10. I think 10 is the perfect number. With with doing a record that is, you know, less than 10 songs. He's mm. super giddy. Um, it's, it's, it's any time that we have these records that, you know, we're talking about 15 songs. Um, yeah. Wayne, Wayne gets a little angry. <laughs> I can imagine. All right. Well, our top song is going to get to eight, eight points. Nick's favorite song, seven points on down to lowest score of one. So we're going to start this off with IGY. And I was this this year's old when I found out what exactly IGY stood for. Right. I had I had zero ideas that it stood for the International Geophysical Year, which ran from July nineteen fifty seven through December nineteen fifty eight. Wayne, did you know this? Uh, I'm sure I read it in the exact same place you did this previous week. Yeah. Okay. David, were you smarter than the two of us? Did you know what that stood for? I didn't when it came out, but I did research that, you know, back, I don't remember when, probably when I was a teenager. And that's probably when I figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a year where uh, around the world, there were a bunch of different scientific projects that were promoting things like, uh, cities doing solar power. There was, um, permanent space stations. Um, the other thing that I read was spandex jackets. So I guess spandex was created during this, Based this, on the uh, original Star Trek series. Yeah. Uh, I think the spandex thing is more of a, that's what makes this song so interesting. And it's so obviously not a Steely Dan song because right. there's nothing sardonic or menacing 
or foreboding about this song. You know, this is like a real, I'm trying to pull up the liner note of that quote that Donald has, you know, this, this record might be, I'm trying to, I can't pull it up because I don't have a physical copy, you know, might be the thoughts of a, of a teenager growing up in, you know, in the suburbs of New Jersey in the late fifties, early sixties, one of my general height, weight and build (laughs) that's like in the record, which gives you the autobiographical dust. Yeah. You know, so this song, it's so positive and it's, you know, I guess it's what, you know, by 76 will be a okay. You know, I guess he's saying, you know, Hey, in another 20 years by 1976, you know, it'll be 90 minutes from New York to Paris. There'll be a, a tunnel under the Atlantic. We're going to, everybody will have a spandex jacket, which was hip in the fifties and the sixties. You, you gotta, you know, if you're a teenager, you're thinking that's, what's so brilliant about it because it's like, there's going to be things that that'll be good for the planet and things that'll be good for a 16 year old, you know, having his own spandex jacket. <laughs> but, but knowing, knowing Steely Dan and, and you know, the, the, a lot of the tongue in cheek, things that they sing about do you think that he's being positive here or do you think that he's being a little bit sarcastic i think he's he's being a little bit sarcastic and i think it's highlighted in that verse about the uh, space stations where the because i love the line the fix is in which he he finds absolutely but the idea if you if i google imaged the space station from 2001 a space odyssey it looks like a roulette wheel which is exactly what he's he's describing here and it is ultimate. It's an ultimate game of chance. You have, I mean, you're in space, hundreds of thousands of miles from the Earth. But the whole thing, I think, there is a sarcasm that I think there's an underlying sarcasm in Donald Fagan's voice I, I, that I've always loved, um, and he can kind of move it up and down a little bit. But I think this is I, at 90 minutes. It's 3,625 miles from New York to Paris. In 90 minutes, that's going 2,416 miles an hour. I don't know that the human body could take that. Your face would rip off. I get what you're saying. I think we're saying the same thing. I think the sarcasm or the uh, what you're talking about comes in the fact that everything this 15-year-old kid is thinking about what's going to happen because of the IGY and because of the promise of the fifties, late fifties, because of the promise of JFK and a young president for the first time ever. No, I know. absolutely agree with you. Cause I think you can hear that. I think it's, it's like, a it, the darkness like comes that. in the fact that everybody listening knows that none of it ended up happening. Yeah. I we think know that's, that's where the sarcasm, I think like you're saying the idealism of the 16 year old and the and it's written from that same sixteen-year-old who's now probably what, in his thirties, and yeah. knows that it doesn't come true. Well, it's incredible because it's so it's almost heartbreaking. A just machine to make big decisions, programmed oh, by fellows that actually came true. and envision will yeah. be clean when their work is done. Will be eternally free and eternally young. It's like no, we won't. <laughs> Right. But that line is so great because that what the first thing I thought of is like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Verizon and all. I mean, that line and ju- a just machine to make big decisions, obviously a c- computer algorithms, which is what controls 
almost everything that you see and read. Yeah, but and, programmed by fellows with compassion. And yeah, vision. yeah, no, but I think those guys from Google think that that's what I think they may have originally had that in you know Zuckerberg and all those guys. I think they originally did have big bright ideas, but it all turns into money. I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm 51 and I had a Commodore 64 and I was 12 years old when that when computers really started. If you had told me then about the internet, I wouldn't have thought anything negative. I wouldn't have thought all the stuff that we're dealing with now, you know, it would have never occurred to me that this could have happened. That was so much more access to more information and more content that there'd be so much more like danger. If I had learned to play drums, we'd be the same person. I'm 51. I had a Commodore 64. And yes, somebody would have told me about the internet. My mind would have exploded. Exploded. And Wayne would have only wanted it for the porn. Uh, You said it. I didn't, but that's. (sighs) (laughs) I would have. Oh yeah. That stack of magazines I had in my closet wouldn't have been there. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's, and it's so beautiful that this is the first song on the record too. It's like, you know. Yeah, I agree. I let's think, just um, set the musically, stage. Musically, it does. The one thing about it musically is it does. It is missing Walter Becker, and I noticed that from listening because I, I listened to Gaucho and then this and then Kamakiriad. Yeah, there is a definite difference in this one musically than those other two. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, other things that I didn't bring up on this. So this was the first single off the record. And I remember this on the radio. Um, I remember it when I was a kid. I always associate it with start me up because that's the other big song of this general of that time on pop on top 40 radio. Yeah. I just remember hearing in the back of my mom's car or my dad's car and just that whole riff, you know, I remember just loving it and not even knowing why at 11 or 12. And uh, yeah, I think we all heard it being played by our parents. Cause it was, it was definitely more on the adult contemporary mm-hmm. charts. It, it reached number eight on the adult contemporary chart on the billboard hot 100. It peaked at number 26. Mm-hmm. Um, the album version that we've, we've been listening to is just over six minutes. Yeah. The, sing- the single version is four minutes and 56 seconds. Yeah. Which, which that's still a really long single yeah. for the radio in 1982. Um, all right. Two other things that I want to bring up. So he was nominated for two Grammy awards for this. And let me, let me throw this out there. Cause I want to hear what your guys' thoughts are. So he was nominated for pop male vocalist. He didn't, he didn't win. Let me see if you guys can figure out who won. So the nominees were, besides Donald Fagan, was Joe Jackson stepping out, mm. nice. Michael McDonald, I keep forgetting, mm. Rick Springfield, don't talk to strangers. There's no way he loses. Elton John, blue eyes. And then Lionel Richie with Truly. Who mm. wins? Lionel. Rick Springfield. It's Lionel. Oh, yeah, there you go. Nope, it's Lionel. Rick Springfield. Lionel wins for Truly. Um, all right. Nominated for Song of the Year. Let's see if you guys can 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 figure out who wins this one. So, uh, Toto for Rosanna. Yep. Yeah. 
Always on My Mind. So this was the Willie Nelson song written by Johnny Christopher, Mark James, and Wayne Thompson. Frankie Sullivan and Jim Petternick. You guys know them better as Survivor. Mm. Eye of the Tiger was nominated. And then Paul McCartney for Ebony and Ivory. Ooh. So who who wins Song of the Year from the, all those nominees? I think Toto did. Yeah, I'd say Rosanna. Toto did not. It was always on my mind. Oh, wow. They won like everything else. Like every yeah. other, every I remember other that. thing. I mean, they won for Best Engineered Recording, which I, uh, which um, this one was also nominated for, didn't win. They won for Producer of the Year over Gary Katz. Uh, they won for Album of the Year, which we talked about. So, yeah. All right. We ready for scores? Ready. What do you got, Wayne? Six. David? I have six. Okay. And this is my eight. I don't mm. know. I just uh, yeah. I always go back to it. Even though it's the single and I didn't want to pick this as my eight, every time I hear it, it just... Um, you can pick it. it. Yeah, it reminds me of that time period. So it sets up the entire record, the entire theme of the record, the positivity of that of that age, of that era, and yeah. what's to come. And I will give an addendum with each song as to why it could be eight. <laughs> there we go. All right. There you go. All right. Next song is Green Flower Street. Woo. And this is probably the most Steely Dan song on the record to me. I that's absolutely what I wrote in my notes. Okay. And since you can't plagiarize yourself, that's okay, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You can't knock yourself off yeah. if it ain't broke, right? <laughs> Anyways, who who's Lu Chang? I didn't do the research well, on that. Yeah, no, but this is great. So the first, I listened to this record kind of in the background. And so I automatically, when I heard Mandarin Plum, I thought that was some sort of euphemism that just made me laugh. But as I listened and looked at the lyrics, he, I'm, I'm going to say he kind of, he beats a girl, uh, a, a Chinese American. Uh, and prob- it sounds like even maybe in Chinatown and Lu Chang is her brother who is not a fan of this relationship. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like an interracial relationship yeah that's how i look at it so the green flower street is like chinatown he's going down to uh you know it it, i did a lot of reading on this one because this is a song that i've always loved the groove is so difficult to play that right hand that jeff is using on the hi-hat is just my arm would fall off trying to play the song when i was a kid and the, the pocket and the groove is so great but uh you know it's I guess, you know, where the nights are bright and joy is complete. I'll keep, you know, keep my squeeze. He'll see her and hang out with her, but only down there because I take that as the, you know, the, it's an interracial relationship and, you know, it's not something that you're going to be broadcasting. Yeah. Would it be different now as opposed to this song in 
1981-82? I think it would be different in 1982. Oh, yeah. But I think, again, he's writing as a as a kid coming of age in the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. You know, if you're hanging out with that Asian girl, you know, especially as Vietnam is, you know. True. There was a lot of, you know, the anti-red, China, you know, that. that Korea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, which. <laughs> yeah. And from the song, both sides. Nobody's yeah. happy. About I always it. have to remember that he he's writing it from that perspective of, of yeah of late fifties. So you know, I'm I'm looking at it from the standpoint. On a side of, note, which is why yeah. when my hero gave Planet Earth the biggest middle finger ever and fell in love with Yoko Ono, that was like <laughs> when you look at when that happened. That was that's kind of like this, you know. Yeah. 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 All right, Wayne. Anything else? Um, I heard it was inspired by on green dolphin street, which I listened to the miles Davis version. And I absolutely love this sounds. I can hear this in it. I can hear the similarities in it. This one's at a much faster tempo, but uh, yeah, I listened to on green. It's not a coincidence that he named this green flower street. No. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Scores. This is my five Wayne, your score. Uh, Four and David. Seven. All right. Next song is Ruby Baby. Hmm. I've been bringing up all of these Grammy nominations. Um, so he was also nominated for a Grammy for this one. And um, yeah, also didn't win. The nominees were Toto for Rosanna, Manhattan Transfers, Route 66, and then mm. two that I don't know who these are Singers Unlimited. Anybody know Singers Unlimited? Not off the top of my head. Lullaby of Birdland. And then Oh yeah. And then In a Dream one uh a song called One Night. So anyways. Didn't win for that. That was another one where Toto, you know, Toto cleaned up that night. <laughs> um originally this was recorded by the Drifters. Oh yeah. And uh this was a, a hit for them. Uh, peaked at number 10 on the R&B chart back in... And you know who wrote it, don't you? 1956. Uh, you know what? I should have figured that out. Lieber and Stoller. Okay. Yeah. Dion also had a big hit with this one in mm. 1962. Reached number two for him. All right. Enough of that. Um, what do you guys think of this arrangement? I'm assuming you guys listen to the... You know, the Dion version, the Drifters version. What do you think of Donald's interpretation of this one? The arrangement is why you could rate this song. I, I could have named this the best song on the record. What he did with the vocals and the horns, and it's it's masterful. It's just a complete retelling of the song. It's 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 insane. 
Yeah. Wayne, what do you got? Yeah. I mean, I, I like the drifters version. I, I guess the drifters have this, I don't know. There's something about any drifter song. It has a, there's a, a veracity. There's a, there's a life in there that you, that there's a soul that comes out and this, it sounded like Steely Dan covering a drifters song. And so they, it, it, I didn't appreciate as much of that as they, and plus they made it five and a half. Lyrically, there's not enough for this to go five and a half minutes. Right. Yeah. And that's what ultimately got this my least. least. The only reason I put this as my least is because it's a cover. Okay. Yeah. But that's, but there's so much in the song. I get the complaint that I just heard about it, but again, it's the same 15 year old kid who's developing his, his tastes and his inclinations. And this song would have been something that he heard on the radio then. And through the lens of what he became, this arrangement is what that is. Yeah. One of my favorite parts about it is the piano solo. Oh, that's exactly what I wrote down. Highlight of the song, the piano solo. Well, you see what he's quoting when he starts it, don't you? No, no. Well, the song, you know, it's you dying to get this girl. You know, I got a girl. You know, I. I when will you be mine? You know, it's I want this girl so bad. So when the solo comes, it's girl, you really got me now. Uh, you got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Like Greg Fillingane's quotes, "You really got me now," that's which true. that's which is, I don't know, it's just smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is, that's absolutely cool. Yeah, and. Look, we we've said this on multiple uh, occasions, Wayne. You know, sometimes when I give the ones, like it's because I really hate it. This is I deducted it very similar to you, David. I I knocked it down because it is a cover, and yeah. because it's a little bit longer. Um, mm. I still like it. Like this is oh yeah, this is this is an album that you listen in totality. And uh, oh yeah, not absolutely. Not a, and I gave it a three because I love Steely Dan and I love the Drifters. Yeah. So even though I may have sounded like I was complaining, I do. I like both those things. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Next song is Maxine. No. <sighs> And I'm just going to throw this over to David because I, I see what scores are. So <laughs> what what is it about Maxine that right now this is your favorite song? It's been my favorite song for many, many, many years. This is the song. I, I It's so hard to convey. Like if I know when that day is coming, I want the end of this song to be the last thing I hear before I go. It's like that for me. It's just, there's something so beautiful about this arrangement. The vocals, the vocal arrangement and the horn arrangements are so, it's so evocative of, it's hard to explain. I mean, he's the young secular 
you know, Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, thinking about what else is out there in the paradigm of like a, a love, you know, a young love. And uh, I was that kid in the suburbs of Miami. So I've always, you know, we'll move up to Manhattan. We'll do this. We'll do that. One day we'll do. It's one of those songs. It's kind of like, it's like the, the wouldn't it be nice thing. To, which to me is like one of the saddest songs of all time. And people are like, how could you say that? It's not sad at all. To, because the whole premise is, well, wouldn't it be nice if, <laughs> which means everything that comes after isn't what's happening. Right. Everything I'm describing is something that isn't reality. So wouldn't it be nice? Because if you're saying, wouldn't it be nice if, then what you're really saying is that none of this is happening now. And that's the same kind of imagery I get with this song, you know, try to hang on, you know, one day we'll wake up, you know, one day things will be like this. One day we'll be in New York, you know, but the meet at Lincoln mall, you know, there's a Lincoln road mall in Miami beach. If, if I ever, there's a few Miami references on this record too, which would make sense because there's the whole tri-state Miami thing, you know, if I ever meet him, I'll have to ask him about that. Is there a Lincoln Mall in Passaic, New Jersey that he was talking about? Or, <laughs> or did he mean, you know, Miami Beach? Yeah. You know what the beauty of this song is for me? Like you, you, you just talked about the, the imagery and the, 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 the vision of this. The way that the song plays out, I can't think of the narration without thinking of this in black and white. Mm. And and you know that that kind of evokes the way that he's playing all you know the the instrumentation of of this particular song it it makes me feel like i'm i'm in the 50s and oh yeah the the, the story is unfolding like it's a, on a black and white television yeah and those horn swells going into the chorus oh, and uh so good it's just and you know he arranged all those horns and uh, yeah, it's just the perfect, perfect song. And that end, the end, the vocal arrangement on the end just destroys me. Try to hang on, Maxine. It's oh my god, it's just, it's just it just takes me away every time I hear it. It's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. All right, Wayne, last comments before we get scores. You know what? I typically like uh, songs with female titles. Uh, my grandmother's name was Maxine, mm. but ultimately I'm going to blame all of this on the drum machine. And like I said, I love, there's an underlying s- sarcasm in Donald uh, Fagan's vocals that I usually love, but this is a very sincere song. And so it, it created a conflict, but the drum machine gave it a, it just gave it a poor flow. Like if that would have just been removed, I think I, I would have been on much more on those along the lines of the two of you. Okay. Are you sure that's a drum machine? The sax solo is great. I yeah, I'm listening to it in my headphones right now, and I'm like, it sure feels like it. I, I always thought that was Jeff. Well, he's he's that he's that good that he sounds like a drum. At machine. At least part of it is is yeah. Well, he does, and he is. Ah. All right. Scores, Wayne. This was my least favorite. Okay, David. Eight. And this is my four. So we're all over the place on this one. All right, uh, we're going to flip the record over. This is New Frontier. She's got a touch of Tuesday, well. 
And I'm just going to kick this over to Wayne because um, I have the benefit of scores. So, yeah, Ed Green was the drummer on that one. Oh, that makes okay. sense. Not Picaro. All right, Wayne, what do you got on New Frontier? Uh, New Frontier feels like a companion piece to IGY. It fits right in uh, time wise, and I, it's a great story. This, I, it's and it's linear in nature, and it's it's got a um, like a sexual angst to it. This guy's trying to get laid he's trying to convince this girl and his parents bomb shelter that the, that the, that the commies might nuke us at any minute um, and then there's that and then it kind of goes into the, almost like a frat party seeing a girl at this at this college party and uh and it's it's completely sexual and then like I say and the, the whole time the chorus is i can't wait till i figure this whole thing out and do what i know i'm ultimately gonna do um, is mixed in between that. till I move and to then, the city. Yeah. And, and to learn design and study overseas. So it's got, uh, it's just, I love that, that whole thing of, of, of trying to, of trying to get girls and knowing that you're can, just can't wait till you figure it out, but knowing that you haven't quite figured it out yet. And rhythmically here, the, 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 that strong, if it's not a drum machine, this guy's that that rhythm in this time works perfectly where I didn't feel like it worked in Maxine right here. It creates this almost like this bullet train feel like of life. Like it's moving at this very steady, constant pace. Mm. Uh, and all of this stuff is happening in between. Yeah. And, and to your point about the bomb shelter thing. So I'm assuming you've seen the <laughs> video of this. Uh, no, I, I didn't check any videos out. Oh, okay. Well, this so this was the second single off the record. They did make a video for it. Did get a little rotation on MTV. Um, it was pretty innovative for 82, 83. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, you, you should. Uh, they did scale down the single version. They sliced it down to three minutes and 50 seconds, which this is actually the longest song on the album at six mm -hmm. minutes and 20 seconds. And for the record, same drummer as Maxine, Ed Green. Oh, there you go. Okay. Monster. And here, here it worked perfect. Okay. All right. Uh, David, what do you got on New Frontier? Oh God, I love it. To me, it's the most Steely Dan of any of the songs on the record, uh, especially lyrically, you know. Again, it's the 50s. Again, you're a teenager and, you know, <laughs> hey, babe, let's have a party in the bomb shelter. <laughs> yeah. The Russians could nuke this place. Any, any second, second. What are we doing? Out of time. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a classic, it's a classic Steely Dan, like theme within the, the theme of what the record is. But there's a, one of my favorite lines is that towards the end where he, uh, I'm pulling it up. Yeah. Let's pretend that it's the real thing. Stay together all night long. When I really get to know you, we'll open up the doors and climb into the dawn. I just love that. Coming out of the bomb shelter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. It's another one of those positive, you know, confess your passion, your secret fear, prepare to meet the challenge of the new frontier. And we all know what that is. You know, that was 1960. So it's right. kind of got that. It's kind of touching on IGY as far as, you know, like what to expect. But, you know, we are under some danger here. So we should probably take advantage of that moment. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just, That's right. Time is running out. That's yeah. right. We don't know. We don't know if we have to. We don't. 
But if we do, it's going to be amazing. But <laughs> hedonism at its finest, right? Come now. on. <laughs> and hedonism with some Dave Brubeck on the on the the the, the turntable. Yeah, it's like it's throw a little Dave Brubeck in it, there, bonding over music. It, it's secular Jewish hedonism. <laughs> that's, that's what I get from this song. <laughs> All right, Wayne, your score. Oh, this is my top score. This is my eight. And then David. I like I said, it, it's got all of the makings of, of a classic song. It could be the best song on the record. It touches on Steely Dan. It touches on the themes that you'd be thinking at that age. But because of our podcast, I put it yeah. at two. I know, I get it. I know, I get it, David. Um all right, this is my six, and if you ask me next week, this might be my eight. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Next song. The Nightfly. Oh. Won't you turn your radio down? Respect the seven second delay we use. So you say there's a race of men in the trees. You're for tough legislation. Thanks for calling. Wait on me. Title track, and again, if you ask me next week, this might be my eight. Um, I love this song. It's uh, a <laughs> yeah. late night DJ in Baton Rouge. Um, his name is Lester. He's taking uh, taking crazy calls. And uh, best line is, won't you turn your radio down? Respect the seven second delay we use. He's not in Baton Rouge. The caller is. Wow. The caller is in Baton Rouge. Okay. Yes. Hello, Baton Rouge. Hello, Baton Rouge. (laughs) You're right. You're right. He's in what, Boston? I think he is. No, he's somewhere. It's from the foot of Mount Belzoni. The Mount Belzoni. Okay. Which is an interesting reference because that's in Mississippi, from what I understand. And that's an area where a lot of the original blues guys were. But I think there was a guy named Belzoni who was a guitar player for the uh, some of the original blues guys it's it's one of those fagan like there's a million meanings to it yeah i read an article so he said maybe it's for other people to characterize them which he's talking about all the lyrics because they were asking where is this mount belzoni and he said i just write what comes into my head essentially Mm -hmm. yeah so he's like not even answering it. Yeah, this was my favorite song for years, especially that groove is just, it's Marcus Miller and Jeff. And the, I mean, the drum track is so slamming. It's just the perfect drum track. Yeah. Thanks for calling. I wait all night for calls. My favorite line is I've got plenty of Java and Chesterfield Kings, but I feel like crying. Yeah. Because he, he, he starts like he's drifting in and out of the, between these calls. He's thinking about his own life and his, um, that last verse with, You'd never believe it. Oh, once, I, once I was once there was a time when love was there on was my a mind. time when love was in my life. Yeah, so that's it's a he paints a great picture here. I I love I love all of the things that's happening and all that you can figure out from from just what few lyrics you know what lyrics are here. You can you can paint this whole story. It's incredible, 
And there was a DJ that he listened to in, in Jersey. I forgot the guy's name. He was in the tri-state area, a, a jazz guy late at night. And uh, there's a lot of that, that imagery. And that was me at that age too. I couldn't fall asleep even then. And um, yeah, there's so much I relate to with this song. It's, and I love, you know, the, in the chorus, the call letters, how he puts that in a, you know, W-J-A-Z. like if you just isolated well, that, it would be, a, yeah, but it's, uh, it's also any radio station, every radio station True. does that. KXP, you know, it's like, you know, every station had that. But he even throws up a plug in one verse. If you want your honey to like oh, yeah. super swell, you just spring for that little blue jar and Patton's kiss and tell. So he's throwing he's, commercial. He's plugging honey and the autobiography of yep. George Patton, like uh, just like they would on the yep. radio. Like he, he does this whole thing. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. Very well done. It's genius. All right. This is my seven. Wayne, your score. A five, but on an eight song record. Yep. This is, Still high. David. Five. Okay. Next song is The Goodbye Look. Ugh. I know a fellow with a motor launch behind A skinny man with two-tone shoes Cause tonight they're arranging a small reception just for me Behind the big casino by the sea And I'm just going to throw this over to Wayne because your score is a little higher than mine. So what what do you like about this? I guess it's Bossa Nova type of song. I love a good Cold War spy story. And that's exactly what this is. This is great. Like lyrically, it's because this plays so well to that Donald Fagan sarcasm. Oh, yeah. And this, this American CIA operative in Cuba and, you know, the revolutionaries. I mean, there's even a line. I love the part where it says, I've had this fever now since yesterday. So they're poisoning him. And that's when, when you first like listen to the song casually, the goodbye look, just you hear that hook and you think a girl blowing you off, but this is the goodbye look is they're going to kill you. They've decided that you're no longer going to be. And that great. They've, because tonight they arranged a small reception just for me behind the big casino. This is just, I love this song. I wish I, I, I love New Frontier, but this was right up there. This was just a close second. It's fucking brilliant. I'm sorry. Whoops. Yeah. Oh, PG. oh it is fucking brilliant. You're absolutely it, it's, And this is similar to uh, uh, New Frontier where it's, it's, it's very Steely Dan. You know, now it's some schmuck American that's stuck. You know, all the Americans are gone. You know, like you didn't leave when you could have. I, I don't look at it as much as he's a CIA guy. I look at it as much as like... I, he just was stuck down there when the revolution happened, you know, and it happened quick, you know, and people left super quick. I remember my mother telling me, you know, like I said, I'm from Miami. She said in between my sophomore and my junior year of high school, you know, the whole school was Jewish. I went home for the summer and then I came back in the fall and uh, three fourths of the, of the kids were Cuban. <laughs> it was like, like that, you know what I mean? It happened very quickly. And um, this is an ode to that. But yeah, he could be a CIA guy. 
Definitely. Well, I can say I'm just using the colonel doesn't usually come and, and just kill regular Americans. Plus, they don't organize this. I just love the way he puts that. They're arranging a small. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. There's, I mean, the colonel standing the in the sun with his yeah. stupid face, the glasses and the gun. <laughs> yeah. I know a fellow with the motor launch for hire. Uh, so he's he's. Yeah. He's trying to get he's out. He's trying to get get out there's, quick. There's all this intrigue that's that's painted in this. And then there's this great Latin beat that's unlike anything else on the record, but just because of what he's the 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 subject just fits perfectly. The it's subject just, is amazing. And the groove is amazing. And that's an ode to, you know, Bossa Nova was becoming very popular then. Yeah. You know, so he would have heard that on the radio in nineteen sixty, fifty-nine, sixty-one. But as a drummer, what makes that groove so amazing to me is that it's not a, whoops, here we go again. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> you know, usually a bassa is, you know, like, you know what I mean? And this one is, the way Jeff is playing it, it's almost, it's like a cross between a bassa and a Cuban beat, what, what Jeff is doing with the drums there. And it's really brilliant the way he plays it. It's like his own thing. I've never heard that beat before or since. Yeah. And, um, and the chords in that song are, are spectacular too. There's so much harmonic movement uh, that it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Larry Carlton's killing it on that solo. Yeah. And uh, Larry's the man. And then the end, you hear that, the, like the steel drums. Doo, 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 doo. You hear like a, like a marimba solo. But if you listen closely, the note starts to bend. It goes, and so halfway through the solo, you realize those aren't marimbas. It's Greg Fillingane's on a keyboard using a pitch bend, you know what I mean? Which is kind of cool. Like it's, when I was a kid, I thought it was like a xylophone or a marimba. And then when I got older, I was like, wait, this is a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant song. All right. David, your score on this one? This one, you know, was my, this was my favorite song when I was a, a teenager. Uh, but for the sake of our podcast, it's number three. All right. Wayne? Uh, and this is this is my seven. This one just grew and grew and grew on me. And as the more I looked at the story, and I do believe that, won't you pour me a Cuban breeze, Gretchen? Gretchen sounds very East German. I, I got to believe she's in on it. <laughs> Interesting side note, there is no drink called a Cuban breeze. Yeah, okay. uh, and they poisoned him, so it's it's got to it, it, whatever it is involves poison. Yeah, there you go. This is my three. All right, and then we're gonna wrap this up. This yep. Is Walk last song. Raindrops. Woo! David, get us started on this. This is um, shortest song on the record at two thirty nine, um, and I'm assuming that um, this kind of hit home for you because you know we're talking about the blue Miami sky and 
the Florida reference. Shore. Yeah, there's some references there for you. This song, this song has been my favorite song on the record, off and on in recent in recent days too. There's something so evocative about the imagery. It's just it's Miami in the summer, you know. It's just a beautiful song, but it's another one that's completely heartbreaking to me. That last verse, it's it's just incredible how he changes a couple of words, and it's it's almost the same as a, uh, you know, as we the first one as we watched the regulars rush the big hotels, we kissed again as the shower swept the shore. You open your umbrella, but we walked between the raindrops back to your door, and there's a. Uh, there's something else with that imagery too. Uh, there's an old Jewish folktale of a rabbi who, who in the rain walked between the raindrops to the temple uh, and he didn't get wet. There's like an old, you know, Jewish fairy tale about that. So it's very interesting that, you know, as a secular Jew, when he throws things like that in there, culturally it hits on a level, you know, if you're another secular Jewish kid from the suburbs, you'll, you'll get that. Yeah. But it's incredible. You know, as we watch the regular, you know, we kissed again, you opened your umbrella, but we walked. And then at the end, you know, that happy day, we'll find each other on that Florida. You know, in my dreams, I can hear the sound of thunder. I can see the causeway that happy day. We'll find each other on that shore. You'll open your umbrella and we will walk between the. It's like, you know, obviously she's gone long gone. The relationship is over. You know, we fought and I can't remember why it's like, it's just so classic, you know, who remembers why those things happen, you know, but he's left with this beautiful image of being down in Miami with this amazing girl. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Love it. Great explanation. Um, Wayne, any, any last comments? I, and I really like this song too. Um, the only thing that I felt, like I would have liked to have seen different was the electric piano. I'd like to a real piano, I think would have, cause I get, I definitely get that time period from this that he's that, that uh, David's talking about. This is that, you know, young adult in Miami mm-hmm. girl of his dreams. And it, it, so it had that old style feel. And I, I think the electric piano was just didn't seem to fit. You mean that, that funny organ? Yeah, that that or yeah, whatever that electronic device instead of a real piano. What's interesting piano is would've... that solo and that organ is Donald. Yeah, yeah. Which you know Absolutely. he gets like Michael O'Marsh and Greg Fillinghans. The guy hires the greatest keyboard players ever, but that's actually him on the solo. It's a rare Donald solo, you know. <laughs> interesting. The bass is interesting too because Greg Fillinghans is playing left-handed bass on the keyboard. And they got my man, Will Lee, to overdub the bass. So the bass is double-tracked, which is something that didn't happen a lot in 1981 when you're recording this record. But that's something that a lot of people do now. So that was an interesting thing. It's a great way to close the record, too. It's a... Yeah. Yeah. It's a good ender. The sequencing on this album is perfect. It's masterful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yep. Yeah, he's not the kid in this song, and there's no idealism in this song. There's nothing about the future, yep. about 1976. <clears throat> this is me at, like, what is he, 31, 32, looking back and remembering the girl that he dated in Miami. 
imagining being with her again, you know, yeah, it's perfect. All right. David, what's your score on this one? My score on this one is four. And then Wayne. Two. And this is my two as well. All right. So this is the point where I go, did we cover everything? Did we miss anything? Uh, We probably missed some stuff. Okay. David, what do you think? Did we cover everything? We covered everything. The only thing we could have touched on more, this was one of the first digital recordings ever made. Okay. And uh, I don't know a lot about that stuff, but I know what went into this was, you know, it's easy to listen to a record like this now and forget that they didn't use computers for this. Right. And that there wasn't, you know, that this was tracked. Oh, one thing we did forget about Ruby, like the way Fagan would work, he was fighting with O'Martian and with filling gains because he wanted the piano to feel a certain way. He wanted the drag to be a certain way. And it got to the point where the left hand of the piano was played by Michael O'Martian. The right hand of the piano was played by Phil and Gaines. And he had them sitting next to each other at the piano, tracking together to get that drag. I mean, it, it <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy. You know, it, when I hear that he didn't do anything for 10 years after this record, it, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that's what they did in Steely Dan too. They did like I touched on earlier. It's just, I need a break. <laughs> yep, totally. And I had read even in Steely Dan, they did the same kind of thing with the drums. Like they'd have Picaro play the snare kick and hi hat. And then uh, someone else played the, all the Tom fills. I don't know if that happened with Steely Dan, but that did happen on IGY. That's uh, my man, James Gadsen playing bass drum and hi hat. And I think it's Jeff playing the Tom fills and the snare. Oh, and maybe that's what maybe that's where and that happened on another song on this record too which but that's the kind of stuff like peter gabriel ended up doing stuff like that i think that do you guys remember the song big time sure yeah mm-hmm. that's i believe that's jerry Murata on the toms i think it's Stuart copeland on the hi-hat okay. and it's one more drummer on the snare like there's three drummers on that track which is i remember reading that when i was 15 going what <laughs> Yeah. I've tried to get Jerry on the podcast. Oh man. He's just got tons of stories. Oh yeah. Love to have him on. Um, all right. Uh, so any guesses on what our top score was? Cause we were all over the place. I couldn't tell you. All right. Yeah. So we always try and come up with our top five songs off the record. Well, we have a tie for fifth, so <laughs> we actually have a top six for this. So we're only leaving out Ruby and mm-hmm. Walk Between the Raindrops. Mm-hmm. So number one song, IGY, that was mostly my doing with my with my top score. Mm-hmm. Got uh, The Nightfly, average score of 5.66 for number mm-hmm. two. We got a tie for third, which is New Frontier and Greenflower Street. And then mm. a tie for fifth of Maxine and the goodbye look. Mm. So, so we're only kicking two songs out of our top, top songs. So nice, but that's look, I, we don't need to just kick those two songs. out. I'll just listen to it. It's eight songs, right? Wayne. Yep. Like, like we can do, yeah. we can, we can listen 40 to minutes. This. Yeah. This is, this is doable. 
All right, David, this has been fun. Yeah, this has been great. Man, thank you so much. This was great. I'm glad we got to do it. Sorry for all that drama that no one will know about <laughs> all good all good you know te- technology is our friend and also our enemy so we, we yes we, it we is get that so um where can people find all of your happenings is there a good place my happenings yeah i i, I keep everything on instagram I guess, how do you find me on Instagram? You search my name or I, I guess it's David underscore Goodstein. There you go. All right. And that's where I, uh, I post all of my musical comings and goings. Yeah. And there's lots of great stuff. There is. Um, all right. Last question. So this is, uh, this is the question that I ask all of our guests and this is how we got connected with you through Josh. So, who do you know that I don't know who should join us on this podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? Who do I know that you, Oh, wow. I'll have to think about that. I know a lot of people that are music nerds like the three of us. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, I'll have to, you'll have to give me a minute on that. Okay. <laughs> well, well we can chat offline. Yeah. All right. So as a reminder, you can find all of our old episodes by going to recordsrevisitedpodcast.com. Of course, uh, we're on the socials. Uh, find me on Facebook at Records Revisited Podcast. Or- Actually, I did think of somebody. Oh, there we go. Okay. I th- did you guys see the movie Echo in the Canyon? Yes. Oh, yeah, I did. One of my best friends. Well, all those guys are my, my buddies. All those guys. Every musician that was in that movie in the band. But the keyboard player in that band is quite the astute music nerd and he's hysterical and that guy would be great. His name is Jordan Summers. Okay. And I'll probably pick a Joe Jackson record or something, but oh, uh, we're so in for that. Or then. Elvis Costello. Oh, we're in for that too. Wayne, Wayne, <sighs> tell, tell, tell uh, David about Elvis Costello. My favorite living songwriter. There you go. He's Jordan's too. There you go. All right just means we have to have him on right Wayne oh yeah he'll probably <laughs> want to do uh what's the one that came the George Martin one in 82 what was that one called around the time of this record uh what's the name of that record punch the clock no beyond belief is on the record uh imperial what? bedroom blood and chocolate yep is that what oh. we're talking about yeah the one with almost blue yeah okay he'd probably pick imperial bedroom <laughs> nice yeah I'd be good with that yeah, you'd love Jordan. I'll hook that up. Yeah, we'll chat offline. All right, cool. Yeah, he's a great dude. He tours with uh, Jacob Dylan a lot. Well, back when we used to do things like that. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah, but thanks again, guys. This was this was a lot of fun. Cool. I appreciate it. All right, Wayne, yeah. um, to tell tell everybody where they can find you on the Instagram. At Records Revisited Podcast. Okay, and then, of course, go find us uh all of our old episodes are out there you can find us apple podcast Gasbox, stitcher high heart media spotify google podcasts and of course please go subscribe and rate or review us so thanks for listening please go support the arts i would tell you to go to a live show but you know the drill on that so please go support your favorite musicians out there on any live streaming events that they're doing and of course go buy a t-shirt of the band you can still do that buy a record <clears throat> visitor record store you can still do that just be safe go mask up or buy your records online like i do we are records revisited and we are out, out. <laughs>